Welcome to Inaudible. I'm your host, Jeremy Wyland. On this podcast, we discuss the weird, beautiful channeled messages found in the long tradition of contact with the Confederation of Planets in service to the One Infinite Creator. These messages articulate a philosophy of spiritual evolution, popularly known as the Law of One. Many of these messages are available to listen to on our sister podcast, Living Love and Light, available on all platforms. We seek to provide analysis and commentary on this philosophy described in these messages, identifying the common themes and grappling with the application of this information to our lives. However, we are not counselors, gurus, or experts of any kind. So please evaluate our words in light of our shortcomings and use your own best judgment. Thanks for listening and welcome Steve Tyman uh, back to the sh- back to the uh, podcast. How are you doing? Pretty good, thank you, Jeremy. Steve has uh, has has shown up on uh, two episodes now. He's uh, our senior channel in the uh, Other Selves Working Group uh, channeling circles, and he's also a retired uh, philosophy professor uh, specializing in philosophy of mind. If, if I'm not mistaken, right? A philosophy of mind tends to be an analytic philosophy category. And uh, when you do continental philosophy, they call it either phenomenology or, or uh, deconstruction or something like that. So it's, uh, that's all that is about. I, I know it's just so far over the head of most listeners. <laughs> right. No, I get it. Yeah, I get it. Um, Steve, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, in episode thirteen, I believe of this podcast, uh, we uh, Ryan Masterson. And Joseph D'Artes and I recorded an episode on an introduction to the archetypal mind. Uh, but it's been so long since that uh, introduction that I don't think uh, it's a bad idea for us to go over some basic concepts for those listeners who have joined us since. Um, so I guess uh, a good place to start would be some sort of accounting for what an archetype is. Could you maybe, do you think maybe that's a good place to start? Yeah, it is a good place to start because uh, it's it's an unusual concept for most people uh, to deal with. Uh, an archetype uh, is a form of explanation of potential human experience, but it's not an explanation that is grounded in anything manifest. It rather functions by way of drawing what is manifest to itself. And so there's always something hidden or uh, undisclosed about the way archetypes work. Uh, and so there's a, uh, a tendency to work by way of indirection, uh, by focusing on what gets gathered to it is kind of like uh, a series of small black holes, I guess you could say, that uh, draw the surrounding uh, energies uh, into themselves in particular ways. And, and that's where the interest comes in. Uh, the, the archetypal schema, uh, which has uh, 22 nodes or archetypes, if you will, uh, articulates a whole approach to spiritual development, uh, particularly in the version that Ra gives that is commonly called the Tarot. Now, Ra also does suggest that there are two other 
uh, archetypal systems, each with the system of 22s, uh, one being the Kabbalah and the other being astrology. Uh, but students of Ra tend to focus on the Tarot, and I imagine that's what we'll do today. I, I think that's at least a place where we begin before I start uh, uh, picking your brain about the Kabbalah. Uh, that, that might be episode 1000 instead of okay. <laughs> 55. Um, okay. So these are the, the way that you describe the archetype, the archetypes, they sound like they're something beyond what's manifest and yet they have these qualities to them. Uh, what does that, what does that imply about the metaphysics around this? Do, do you have anything to say about that? Well, uh, as Ross suggests in other contexts, uh, the metaphysical domain, which uh, is also identified with time-space in the terminology that comes out in the Law of One, uh, has a separate set of rules and laws governing it. Uh, now, those are not those would be hidden to us while we are in incarnation, in what would be called space-time, but uh, it it has a complex series of qualities, characteristics, dynamics of energy, all its own. And it's probably correct to say that the seat of the archetypes would be metaphysical in this sense, or would be um, a portion of time-space. But interestingly, it is that portion of time-space most adjacent to our space-time experience. And in that regard, uh, our space-time experience can be seen as governed by or related to a structure that's off-stage, so to speak, that is, that is metaphysical, that is beyond manifestation. And so the seat of these archetypes would you say that that is what those of Ra, those of the Confederation, typically refer to as the archetypal mind? Is that is that a correct inference there? Uh, yes, providing that one understands by the archetypal mind that it it is a an occupant of time space. Okay. Now the, the mind itself, which means that it is not what we would typically call conscious. So it is not. The conscious mind. Uh, so, if you take if you take the term mind to be comprehensive with regard to consciousness and the unconscious, yes, it would be correct to speak in terms of the archetypal mind. And the archetypal mind is typically seen as being at the root of our overall mind complex. Do I have that right? At, at the root but not the flower. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Uh, so very deep down. Um, okay. Uh, well, let's talk about uh, a specific approach to the art, to, to the archetypes uh, that we're going to use the Tarot. So the Tarot is 22 concept complexes whose visual aids are these images on these cards. Uh, do we know anything about the provenance of these images? Well, there are several sets of uh, images that are properly Egyptian in origin, uh, and they differ in 
small ways, but not large, uh, for the most part. Uh, the Brotherhood of Light has uh, a, a set that uh, is accessible, and it's as good as any, actually. There are uh, certain differences in the representations that are pointed out in the Law of One, uh, but they're not terribly significant. Uh, and so it's it's useful to have the images because the way that the archetypes uh, function within themselves, within each archetype individually, is not a discursive process as we understand it. So you can't say definitively that one portion of the concept is related to the others in certain decisive ways. It's rather a, a concept complex or a gestalt, if, if you uh, prefer. Uh, and uh, it requires invoking a portion of the mind that is not commonly used. Uh, the best way I could describe the typical approach to an individual archetype would be a pattern of associations. Uh, so uh, it, it can be very frustrating for somebody locked into causal thinking mm -hmm. uh, to, to deal with these patterns of association. Uh, but uh, that's what you have to get used to doing. And for most people, it's useful uh, not to try to establish an absolute meaning of each archetype, but merely to kind of dwell with the image for a period of time, and then to dwell with the images of others, and then to keep all of the images of all of the archetypes together in mind at the same time, if you can manage that, uh, so that you get a sense of the array of the deep mind. Uh, as described by the archetypes. I assume that the idea of the images and keeping them in mind is that they are symbols pointing to underlying feeling tones or deep, deep thoughts that then the more that you keep these in your mind as images, the more the, th the, the, the deeper significance sort of resonates and it kind of bubbles up instead of, instead of this idea of us like discovering or penetrating it in some like ratio, rational way. Right. Yes. Ratio senator. Yeah. Uh, yes, you're right. Uh, the, uh, I like the term feeling tone. I, I would add to that, that, there is a an energy component to it that that actually structures, and so uh, it's uh, you reach the feeling tone by allowing yourself to be drawn into that structuring energy gestalt that each one of the archetypes represents. And then, and then the idea, I suppose, for the student is that tapping into these feeling tones and then associating these feeling tones with each other starts to give more information about each one and the overall, because the, because the sense that I get uh, from conversations that you and I had going way back almost 10 years uh, is that there's a kind of positionality almost that can be thought of. And, and, it, and it, it brings to mind uh, what the, what the, what the um, 
significance of the sequence is in each of these uh, domains, mind, body, and spirit, because there's seven they, stations in each domain. They are, they are indeed sequential. Uh, the advanced student, however, learns to move up and down the sequence and around about the sequence after enough of the archetypes have been mastered so that the overall gestalt begins to come into view. But you're right, it is sequential. Now, those who are uh, familiar with the notion of uh, the energy centers, they're, they're sometimes called chakras, mm -hmm. uh, will have a leg up in understanding this because the chakras too, in terms of the way they are activated, are sequential. And so you have the root chakra, which is uh, in the Law of One described as the red ray center, and uh, moving up the, the, the uh, color spectrum, you have red ray, orange ray, yellow ray, green ray, blue ray, indigo, and violet. Uh, and uh, you cannot typically activate a higher center without having activated the lower centers. But now having, having said that, <clears throat> There is a great deal of work to be done once each center has been activated with regard to setting up the intricate balances amongst the energy centers. Uh, and so uh, that doesn't necessarily any longer proceed in the same sequential manner. Uh, so it, it functions, uh, to go back to your metaphor of the feeling tone, it functions something like what you might call a tone poem, in that uh, it's like you're, you're playing a melody, but in this case the melody is played with your very being, with your very energies in terms of the energy centers, or when you're talking about the archetypes, in terms of the resource of the various nodes or components of the deeper mind uh, that can, once again, uh, be harmonized and balanced according to really exquisite degrees of refinement. Do you have anything to say? Because I'm looking at this uh, raw quote, uh, session 78, uh, question 30, where they're talking at where Don asks, you know, hey, is there a is there a relationship between the fact that we have seven archetypes, seven densities, and presumably seven energy centers and Ra talks about uh, what well, they say uh, the relationship is tangential and that no congruency may be seen. Uh, but is there any kind of like relationship there that you can speak to, or is it just a mysterious pattern? Well, I've, I've spoken to the way the tone poem effect comes into play. Uh, I, I haven't personally been able to find any way to map the one onto the other, and I think that's probably what uh, Ra was cautioning against. Uh, <clears throat> uh, they both relate to uh, what are esoteric uh, structures of the human being. Uh, in one case, it's it's uh, more the, the deeper portions of the mind, and the other is just the energy system associated with embodiment. Uh, but uh, the 
precise mapping of one onto the other seems not to be a profitable undertaking. No, and in that very quote, uh, those of Ra continue, however, the progress through the archetypes has some of the characteristics of the progress through the densities. So there is some kind of motif here. Uh, Yes. These relationships, they continue, may be viewed without being, shall we say, pasted one upon the other. And that that refers to the mapping, I think, that you were talking about, right? Yes, that's that's right. Okay. That's another way of saying that same thing. Yeah. All right. Well, um, would it be useful to then uh, start? We wanted to uh, have a constrained focus on this uh, episode. Uh, you had suggested maybe starting with the first five stations of mind and the first five stations of body. So would we like to start with the mind and maybe start with the matrix of mind? Or is there any other uh, 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 exposition we need to do? Uh, yes, that would be that would be good. Um, I would start start actually by by taking the matrix and the potentiator together, because I think each one becomes clearer in its function when it's contrasted with the other. Uh, so uh, the matrix could be described as consciousness, uh, uh, awareness. Uh, in the sense that one merely takes in what one encounters uh, and uh, to the extent that that does not involve a relationship to the outside world, it merely would suggest a kind of reflection on self that is not yet energized by anything of the nature of uh, desire or urgency or need. Uh, So uh, there is a sense in which there is an outreaching in the matrix of mind. It, it, It feels itself in its emptiness and, and there's a kind of a primitive form of desire in that it, it wishes to fill that emptiness, but it doesn't have any indication uh, about what direction it would need to go in order to achieve that fulfillment. And so as it reaches out, it, it comes into contact with another configuration, and that is what is called the potentiator. And it's the potentiator, then, that gives uh, purpose, direction, uh, characteristic, uh, orientation, if you will, uh, to what could be called pure consciousness. Uh, And this, this is typically associated with the uh, unconscious. So in a certain kind of rough and ready way, when you're dealing with the division between the matrix and the potentiator of mind, you're talking about consciousness in its relationship to the unconscious. Uh, uh, Conceived in such a way that neither can be fully thought through without reference to the other. So uh, they, they constitute a kind of natural pairing. Yeah. 
Um, and, and just as a, a point on our specific approach in this episode, I think I get the sense that you and I are going to stay away from specific interpretation of, 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 of items in the images. Is that, is that something that's useful to you in your work or do you, do you sort of move beyond that? I, I use the, the representations quite a bit at the beginning, but at a certain point, uh, once I was familiar enough, at least what they, uh, how they registered for me, they ceased to become uh, terribly useful. Uh, now that doesn't mean that I couldn't go back with some profit and and review the images again. Uh, there are there are certain disadvantages to the images that have come down to us, for one thing, uh, and they and it tends to be the fact that they are kind of grounded in Egyptian culture, which right. uh, is is not the culture that we live in. And so there are a lot of, you know, royal uh, uh, representations and, and, and so on and so forth, and meant to suggest a kind of ennobling, uh, but we don't live in a society which has royal royalty any longer. So uh, I think that probably doesn't resonate very deeply. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, what continues to resonate, however, uh, is are the gender differences, and what Ra, Ra specifically uh, emphasizes the importance of those. Uh, and it's interesting to note that with regard to mind, what is called matrix of mind is in the graphic representation uh, suggested to be male. Whereas the uh, uh, potentiator of mind is female. Now, uh, that struck me as odd at first because matrix obviously is a term drawn from the female, uh, and in particular the, the mothering quality of the female. Uh, but uh, it struck me as less odd when I came to realize that uh, when we think of the division between male and female, the first thing that comes to mind is the fact that we're embodied differently. Mm -hmm. And the female body, uh, in its matrix function, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, in the in the matrix of body, it is the female that is emphasized, and the uh, potentiator of body is male, and and so that that's the first example one has of the way the configuration one finds in in the mind is mirrored oppositely in the body. So that there's a, a kind of crossover effect from mind to body in this mirroring function. So it, it comes back at one uh, flipped. Uh, and so that's, that's a, uh, a characteristic that is retained throughout the whole archetypal structure. Okay. Yeah. I... And, so, and it's also useful to note that when, uh, when Roth speaks of a male and female function, it's not necessarily related to uh, male and female uh, as we understand it uh, in our incarnational experience, 
that is every male also has a female dimension and vice versa. So uh, th these polarities are best understood as metaphysical polarities. Right. Uh, it has certain significance with regard to uh, our embodiment, but uh, it will be very easy to overstate that. Of course. Yeah. It's a great example of uh, the nuances in, in interpretation and, and sitting with these images because an archetype is kind of like the epitome of what a quality might be. And yet what we have in manifestation is always a mixture of these qualities in different, in different quantities or different uh, significances. So yes. it's a great, it's a great example of what we mean when we talk about the ar archetypal. Um, and I would just want to say that uh, it, it, the, the, if you're first getting into the archetypal mind and the tarot, read book four, or I guess the second part of uh, the Ra contact and, and, and look at how Ra guides Don through interpretations of each of the points in the picture, because half the time they're, they're giving significance to it. Half the time they're telling Ra or sorry, they're telling Don to uh, release it from its stricture. In other words, not attribute so much significance. That's why I think it's probably best for us to stay away from discrete interpretations of the images. Don't you agree? You can, you can get too caught up in them. Yes. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's useful, especially when you're starting out to sit with the images, uh, but I wouldn't get too carried away with uh, trying to do one-to-one -one significances between this and that and the other thing. Yeah. Now, now the point you made about the gender of the figures is, I think, super crucial. Uh, you and I were involved in some uh, conversations with Kuo where they discussed uh, the the significance of the gender and then relative to what it means to be uh, – I think that there was like a four-part – uh, system. So there's like male and female, but there's also with matrix and potentiator generation and reception. Yes. Um, uh, and, the, the, oh, generation, the reception and activity and passivity, right? Yeah. The, uh, uh, Ross says at one point that, uh, the male is that which reaches and the female is that which awaits the reaching uh, and so that that can be uh, extracted from the experience of male-female interaction uh, to a universal principle. Uh, and uh, that's kind of what we're dealing with when we're talking archetypes. It implies a valence or a directionality of whatever energy is involved here. Is that a, maybe a way of saying it? Yeah, that's right, and and of particular importance is the notion of the polarity. There has to be difference for manifestation to uh, occur in a significant way. So uh, manifestation always works through particular relationships of different or differently polarized energies. So there's that which uh, is sometimes called in in the Western uh, mystical tradition. Uh, they often use the terms uh, magnetic and electrical. So the electrical is the male and the magnetic is the female. Uh, so there are many ways of representing this, uh, but they are intended to signify metaphysical uh, structures uh, primarily.
And and we also have with with matrix and potentiator of mind, this idea that one is broadly ascribed to the conscious mind, one is broadly ascribed to the unconscious mind, hopefully without that's putting too fine of a point on it, right? That That's right. And, and uh, further, I would say that uh, to move into either matrix or potentiator tends to be a somewhat rarefied uh, undertaking, that is, an undertaking that one would uh, be able to pursue only in meditation. And so it, it would not have an immediately uh, descriptive value. Uh, you don't have descriptive value until you get to something like experience. Uh, and there's a particular relationship between uh, matrix potentiator experience and catalyst, catalyst being actually before experience and the numbering that they use. So right. it goes matrix potentiator catalyst experience. Uh, and in the middle of all that, there is a function which Ra identifies as the significator. Uh, <clears throat> to those that are familiar with the term, the word mediator uh, might help uh, to uh, articulate what the significator is. Uh, but but uh, one already knows, if one has a division in mind between that which is overt and that which is covert, between matrix and potentiator, uh, in order for that division to be able to function in an intelligent way, there has to be an awareness of both dimensions. Uh, and, and, and the awareness of both dimensions simultaneously suggests a function or a capacity that can't be reduced to either matrix or potentiator. And that's the significator. And so uh, in the earliest forms of the creation, in the earliest stages of the creation, uh, where there was already archetypal structure uh, in play, uh, they didn't yet have as many different, well-established archetypes as there now are. Uh, we now have uh, 22. Uh, there were originally far fewer. And if you, if you keep going back and back and back, you're going to reach a point where at, at a certain point, as soon as you have matrix, and Matrix discovers that it there is within itself a lacuna or a lack mm -hmm. or an outreaching into what it does not know. Then, then you have to postulate that which it does not know. And that becomes uh, a source of its own. So you have that which, that which in knowing knows it does not know what it reaches for. And that which supplies what is reached for to the knowing. But as soon as you have those two, there's at least implicitly a third moment. The third moment that says, now we have two. And so the third moment, in a sense, 
unifies those first two by saying there are two. There is duality. And, and the duality is the synthetic moment. I mean, the, the recognition of the duality is the synthetic moment that overcomes the duality, and that's the significator. And the significator is typically, uh, one of the ways that Ra talks about it is that it represents the significant self. Am I right about that? The significant self, yeah. And it's interesting that that significant self sort of encapsulates mm -hmm. this duality. Uh, what more can we talk about when we, what do we mean by significant self? Uh, well, uh, 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 how is it that the song goes, uh, me, a name I call myself? Uh, it's uh, the significant self is a reflexive moment. Uh, it, it is one that understands itself to have meaning, to have purpose, to have direction, to have agency. And it lives, <clears throat> excuse me, it lives within that agency. It manifests as that agency. <clears throat> so uh, the agency between uh, exercise between the two functions of matrix and potentiator is that which understands that not only are there these two moments, but they belong together as portions of a one being, and that one being has agency with respect to the attention that it might direct either to the one or to the other at any particular moment in time. That would be the significator. And that, that, is that attention uh, primarily directed towards those things that the mind is reaching to the potentiator to? Like, can we, can we talk about it in that kind of narrative, narrative sense, or is it? Did you say attention or attention? Yeah, uh, attention. Yeah. So the significator is, 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 is observing this, this, this interaction between these two poles, matrix and potentiator. There is a dynamicism to it, right? There's a, there's a, there's a directionality of the energy. Um, what is the significator like? Uh, what role do they play? And you say they have an eight, it has an agency. What is that agency? The, the agency isn't just the observation that there is the matrix and the potentiator. But uh, if, if we talk about this in terms of this kind of incipient tone poem uh, metaphor that we've used, uh, it's, it's the one that intones. So it, it directs it, uh, it by, by focusing the attention hither, thither, or yon, it directs how the deliverances of matrix and potentiator shall shall uh, proceed. I see. It's a the significator represents a reflexive moment in this system. That ref, the, the reflexiveness is is sort of like a take, shall we say? Yes. Okay. On on this directional energy flow and the consequences of it. That's right. Okay. And, and of course, lurking behind this entire system is the uh, uh, decisive function of the choice. 
And so uh, you could say that uh, right from the beginning, the significator is invested in choice, the choice of directing its attention, if nothing else. And uh, uh, ultimately, that choice involves how the entirety of the being, of a third density being, uh, will be polarized. And so the, the uh, theme of the entire archetypal structure is the ultimate necessity of making that choice in a way that re reaches all the way down to the roots of mind. Now, fundamentally, in Ra's characterization, there are only two choices of polarity. That is, how the evolution of the individual mind-body-spirit complex will proceed, either by being magnetic in the sense that it draws everything to itself and holds all the energy that it can muster to itself as its own, that would be the way of service to self, or by being radiant uh, and uh, uh, not attempting to hold to itself the energies that pass through it, but allowing them to radiate outward to the creation as a whole. And that is the configuration which Ra describes as service to others. I never recognized how uh, that choice significator connection is involved specifically with this outlook on the matrix and potentiator of mind to the extent that a big part of polarity, as Kuo has uh, uh, said many times, and maybe Ra, uh, is this what is the conscious mind's relationship to the deep mind? Is it going to be one of exploitation and plunder or one of deep commitment and relationship? And it seems like I never realized before how much a significator is a kind of conduit for that for that uh, uh, take, that kind of regard for the resources one has. That's right. And uh, uh, we've seen that uh, the matrix and the potentiator uh, themselves constitute a pairing. Uh, and so they, they, they kind of belong to each other in the sense that you can't really fathom what it means to be the one without uh, fathoming the other. Uh, and uh, we'll find that, once again, there is a pairing between catalyst and experience, which are the ones that come next in the order. Uh, but the significator is not paired in that way. It's it's paired, it, it's paired to the one unifying factor, the one unifying archetype of the whole system, and it's the one that does not belong to the three groups of seven, mind, body, spirit, each with seven archetypes, uh, and and that is called the the fool. Uh, it, and that is that is what represents the whole mind-body-spirit complex in the moment of decisively choosing its path, which it must do while not having 
all of the information available to itself, even about who or what it is. Yes. Yes. This is, this is part of the mystery of the veiled mind and this discovery process that unfolds through the mediating influence of time and, uh, and, and, and mentation. Uh, so you anticipated where I want to take things, I think. And, and, and I should just say like all of this is, uh, a beginning entry into these concepts. Don't uh, the listener should feel free to have their, draw their own conclusions. Uh, this is all very deep and it's very difficult to put in the words. I'm very blessed to have somebody who's, uh, uh, very skilled with words on this podcast, but, uh, as those of Ross say, like, you know, sometimes you got to release these things from stricture and feel into them. What is it that mm-hmm. those of Ross say the archetypes uh, haunt? They do not explicate. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So we have this idea of uh, broadly speaking, conscious, broadly speaking, unconscious matrix and potentiator of mind. And then the significator of the mind as this uh, relation to this duality, where then what is the role then of catalyst and experience of mind, Steve? Well, let's let's start with catalyst because that that's that's one of the most arresting thoughts uh, in all of the law of one because it uh, it's used very often in contexts uh, that are not specifically related to the study of the archetypes. You find it. Uh, constantly uh, out there. You know, people are complaining about how uh, intense their catalyst is at the moment, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, catalyst is often and, used as a synonym for bad luck. Or, or just <laughs> stuff that happens to you. Yeah, you yeah. Uh, and uh, often bad luck turns out to be better in the end than good luck does, but never mind that. Uh, you win the lottery and your life goes to, to pot. Yep. Uh, Sometimes quite literally, uh, but uh, uh, cat- catalyst is a term that, uh, in the broadest sense, means only what happens to you. Uh, now, typically, when we are incarnate in third density, we relate to what happens to us as something originating outside of us. And therefore, to talk about catalyst as an archetype of the mind would seem rather odd uh, from that point of view. So catalyst would refer when it's not directed towards something that we take to be happening outside of us. Uh, It could refer to moods. So uh, you could wake up... uh, some morning and find that you're in a good mood or in a bad mood or something like this. Uh, whatever mood you're in, it catalyzes you. It it uh, bestirs you, shall we say. Uh, it it uh, incites or solicits something from you. Uh, and uh, the sense in which the catalyst of the mind functions as an archetype across the board uh, with regard to all events that transpire in the life of a mind-body-spirit complex, uh, suggests that there's a kind of dreamlike quality to human experience 
in the sense that uh, the events that happen to us that generally we take to be significant to us only insofar as they ha have some kind of uh, impact upon our lives, impact coming from without. Uh, they really manifest a deeper process according to which those things which we call our experiences are drawn to ourselves. Now, that, that's the hard pill to swallow because, uh, for example, uh, those, those events which give rise to pain or suffering uh, or grief uh, in us, we are loath to think of as having been uh, elicited somehow by our very being and the way that we fit into the you know, larger uh, energy complex of our society and our world. Uh, uh, we, we tend to think of these things as having no intrinsic significance, that the significance only comes from uh, how we choose to react to them. But in fact, uh, the dreamlike quality suggested by the very concept of catalyst suggests that there is a kind of built-in pattern or meaning to the way our life unfolds, largely hidden from us. And so uh, to own those things which we call our experiences as a portion of our catalyst uh, is to recognize that the totality of our beingness has this kind of hidden spiritual significance and a, a kind of uh, hidden fatedness uh, or pre-programming uh, that we might have actually been party to in time-space, but certainly do not feel party to in space-time. So, so it, in a way, it kind of doubles down on this notion of the potentiator being a portion of the unconscious mind that the conscious mind cannot reach or control. And so it, 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 it suggests that whole dimension of our life pattern. And that, of course, ultimately gives rise to what we call the experience uh, of our life events. Uh, and uh, when we use that term in the way that Ra does, it suggests a kind of uh, acceptance of the way that catalyst functions and a, a willingness to take that in and to uh, establish a sense of who I am 
based on an integration of the totality of the catalyst. And that integration then is represented as my experience of myself. My, so it becomes my experience once I have processed it. And th there, once again, we have the mediating function of the significator. Uh, and so a bad thing happens to me. Uh, it, is, it, is it due to the evil influence of the world? Is it due to pure happenstance of an absurd universe? Um, is it due to some process I know not what but accept is a deeper portion of myself? And so that inevitably gives rise to the question, what self is this? What does it mean to be a self when the self, even the self which is faced with the need to own its catalyst, uh, cannot say to itself that it has originated that catalyst. So uh, the, the self then becomes seen as something which is open-ended at its root. There, there, there is a kind of openness to the, to the universe at its root, and it's very tempting to want to close that off. And and if and to uh, limit the sense of self to that which I can control. Now the way of control that is the way of service to self. And uh, the the other path of evolution is is one that resolves to keep that open endedness which begins in the root and draw it upward to the crown. So that it. it so that that which comes through the root uh, undergoes the coloration of all of the archetypal moments of selfhood uh, and then radiates outward uh, in, a, in a manner which is not closed off, which is open. And that's the way of serving others. It's radiant. Yes, uh, and I, I would bring to into the conversation uh roswords uh session 94 uh question 12 where they say as the entity increases in experience it shall more and more choose positive interpretations of catalyst if it is upon the service of others path and negative interpretations of catalyst if it if its experience has been along the service of self path i think what you uh uh prompted in me is the recognition of there might be some connection with the significator in that interpreting uh, function, the, the right? Sig the significator is the interpreter. That's right. And the experience so, is kind of the material that's being interpreted, right? Or uh, the catalyst, well, it, maybe. It, I don't know. Because catalyst uh, no, is usually it, associated with the unconscious. That was also something I wanted to query you on. It, it would be the, the catalyst that is interpreted, and the result of that interpretation is experience. Okay. So in other words, so in other words, uh, so, so, some, I think the example that Raw uses is somebody waiting in line in a supermarket and uh, the person in front of them doesn't have enough money to pay for their uh, uh, for the goods that they've selected. Uh, and so the question is, wh what will be my response? Now, th that response will will be registered 
in the nature of the experience I deem myself to have had. Now, if I'm impatient with that person, if I look down on people who don't have their act together well enough to be able to pay for the goods that they've selected, uh, it, it can easily be seen as an impediment. Uh, I had to suffer the indignity of having to wait for this stupid idiot that was ahead of me in line. And, and so and, and th that can get under my skin and I can then sally forth into the world after making my own uh, purchase with a kind of a sense of irritation and, and how, how uh, utterly annoying the world can be and how, and how uh, uh, stupid uh, its inhabitants so often are. So I can take, so that can be the nature of my experience in that, in that case. Or uh, maybe uh, I feel compassion. Maybe I feel uh, that uh, this tends to open my heart. Maybe I feel generous. Maybe I've got a, f a few dollars that I can spare this person so they can make their purchase. And then I go forward feeling a part of uh, a larger whole. And I've been given the gift of an opportunity to uh, help out. So uh, uh, those are two very different experiences which will resonate through the remainder of my day and in, in, uh distinctly different ways, uh, but uh, the basic uh, differentiator there between it being a good experience or a bad experience is associated with the uh, function of the significator, uh, and that function will suggest uh, the type of inclination I am taking towards the choice about what manner of being I myself want to be. And then there's also, I guess, one more thing to say, well, a few more things to say. One being, you know, you've, you've uh, described using Ra's example, a particular episode. The idea is that over time, polarization is all of these episodes successfully building more and more a, a, a polarity towards one or towards the other, or, if you're in the sinkhole, you go one way, then you go the other way, then you yeah, go. Yeah, and that uh, that's probably the most frequent uh, that we often find that we uh, we catch ourselves do doing things or behaving in ways or receiving our experience uh, in ways that uh, are receiving our catalyst in ways that we wish we hadn't or or would would like to think we wouldn't. And, and this that's probably getting towards the transformation archetype, which we want to save for another episode. So I won't linger yeah. too much on that. What I do want to ask you about is uh, session 93, question 20, where those of Ra say, all that you perceive seems to be consciously perceived. This is not the correct supposition. All that you perceive is perceived as catalyst unconsciously by the, shall we say, time that the mind begins its appreciation of catalyst. That catalyst has been filtered through the veil and in some cases much is veiled in the most apparently clear perception. Anything you want to say to that based on this, this rubric you've, you've worked out here? Well, simply that uh, what we think of as uh, our experience is typically only the very tip of an iceberg. That is, there, there's a, a whole lot hidden from us. 
uh, and a, a lot of it has to do with the orientation of self that we've built up over time through the processes of um, uh, directing our attention. So the, the function of the significator, or the significant self, is absolutely decisive in all of this. And it's for that reason that when I graphically represent to myself the way that the uh, first five archetypes relate to each other, uh, I always put the significator in the center. So I create a square matrix potentiator catalyst experience, and then right in the center of them, I put the significator because the, the significator can relate to anyone independently and it can relate to all four simultaneously, and it typically does in the tone poem that it itself is. It, it's, I think it's very important um, to point out that mind comes before body and then body comes before spirit. Mind is like this very – do you have any thoughts on why mind is first? Uh, because the body is the creature in mind. Now, I, I, I wouldn't say body comes before spirit. I, it's one of those odd things that you encounter in metaphysics where that which you uh, arrive at third is that which in and of itself is first. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so it's much easier to talk about order of priority when one's dealing with mind and body. Uh, Ross says that the higher shall shall govern the lower. Uh, the lower is always the manifest and the higher is the unmanifest. And there, and there is a, a good portion of uh, the mind which is not manifest, which is uh, invested more in time space. Uh, so uh, uh, you could say that Ra would endorse the notion of mind over matter. Uh, but let it be known that much of mind is lost to itself. So uh, mind does not have conscious control over its own functions, right? Uh, let alone the function of embodiment, typically. And I think it's important, before we move on to the five archetypes of body that we're going to discuss, I think it's important to recognize that We've 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 sketched out some scenarios in which the, these archetypes are operative, but when we when we sketch them out, we put them in a context that somebody can understand as a mind body spirit complex. In their operation archetypally, it's purely mind, right? It's purely mind, and then that we have an experience of pure mind, but we experience it as a complex of many different domains, right? Yeah, I just want to be clear on that because it's so easy to collapse these archetypes into something easy to reason about, easy to apply to one's life. And I think I just want to caution the student to like take a step back, think more abstractly, even 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 when it's frustrating, even when it feels like you're not going to figure these things out, the mind and your heart are doing good work in this churning. Okay. So uh, let's uh, jump into the body, the five body archetypes. What can we say about matrix and potentiator of body? Well, uh, the matrix of body 
uh, Ra simply describes as uh, activity which has no ability to be inactive. So uh, it's like uh, movement. It's like pure energy, I suppose you could say. That That is, uh, it's patterned, but it operates according to those patterns within itself continuously. Uh, an example of that would be the autonomic nervous system. Uh, it just uh, your heart your heart will be you can you can like it you can not like it but <laughs> uh, your heart will be as it will be right? and so that that just uh, so the the matrix of body uh, can be understood uh, as just pure uh, activity uh, now uh, that that's almost the opposite of what you find in the matrix of mind. And similarly, when you get to the potentiator of body, that too is almost the opposite because you you would tend to think that when dealing, for example, with the matrix of mind in relation to the potentiator, consciousness versus the unconsciousness, the authority rest would rest with consciousness, surely. Uh, well, it, it's the reverse in body because the potentiator of body which also goes by the uh, name of wisdom, uh, as as Ross says, only through judgment may unceasing activities and proclivities be experienced in useful modes. And so uh, the uh, legitimate role of judgment in Ra's system uh, is represented in the potentiator of body, which can introduce uh, order and direction to the uh, ceaseless functioning of uh, our patterns of embodiment. Uh, it's only through judgment uh, that we make these determinations. Uh, and so when, when it comes to uh, catalyst of uh, body that really best captures probably what we normally think of when we talk about catalyst because it uh, uh, things ha happen to us uh, and we sense them through our bodies uh, nothing can happen to us that we don't sense through our bodies so uh, that's the immediate point of ingress of anything that comes to us from outside. And uh, it's kind of this, the representation that's given on that card is that of a wheel. Uh, and one thinks of the, the wheel of uh, fortune or the wheel of karma uh, that uh, tends to cycle again and again and again. And so uh, if we do not take up the catalyst and put it to good use, it tends to repeat. Uh, so, for, for I mean, one knows perhaps of people who have a history of unsuccessful relationships, and uh, 
it, it becomes almost predictable that the same kind of person will be chosen the next time uh, because that, that's a pattern or a rut somebody has fallen into. And until you get to the point where you uh, are able to relate to others in a different manner according to a different pattern or a different gestalt, you're going to find the same catalyst represented to you over and over and over again. So it just repeats, it cycles through. All right, so that's, uh, that's the catalyst of the body. The experience of the body uh, is, is a little bit more difficult to uh, grasp. Uh, it, uh, Ra uses the word enchantress here. Uh, it's a female representation. Uh, and it, uh, it's intended to suggest that once one has attained a capacity to think of a catalyst as having a lot more than what appears on the surface to it. And once one begins to realize that one has a hand in the catalyst that comes to one, there's a kind of magical uh, effect which results in that, in that one one can kind of conjure the catalyst to function in a more tractable way. Uh, and so one becomes mistress of that catalyst. I've always been really struck by the image of this archetype um, because it seems to have some sort of uh, yeah, it's it, it's uh it's an enchantress facing a lion and closing the jaws of the lion with 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 her with her hands, and there's there's something really touching about that for me that that has a because because this because right off the bat it feels like discipline right it feels like some way of bringing to heal maybe not to heal maybe that is the wrong relationship but some sort of productive uh, positive relationship between the more animal side of the body and that part of the body uh, that has to kind of wait to learn the lessons before it understands how to relate to that animal side. But once that yes, occurs, the, it, it's, it's very, it's very magical. The, the, uh, the lion is a fearsome thing. And uh, just as indeed uh, catalyst can be a fearsome thing. But when one uh, begins to be mistress of that catalyst, uh, one, one starts to see it differently. Uh, one, one is unmoved by fearing the catalyst and in fact begins to regard it as uh, a, a benefit for the purposes of growth. Uh, and that, that can be a really challenging experience if it's catalyst that seems negative, you know, when one faces uh, disease or misfortune or death, uh, these uh, seem fearsome. Uh, but if one 
if one has done the work up to this point, one begins to see everything as an opportunity, an opportunity for growth and further development. And uh, so, I mean, that's a pretty, it can be a pretty steep incline towards that realization, but uh, that is the incline that Raw indicates. It's also worth noting that catalyst of body is the first archetypal image we have that uh, has no gendered uh, character involved in it, right? Like it's yeah, it's just things. Yeah, it's it, and I get the sense yeah. that it 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 relates to the way in which manifestation in the material illusion. There's kind of like a randomness to it. I I am I'm, I'm reminded of uh, there was an '80s conscious channeling that Carla did of an entity named Yam that shows up in a lot of the Circle R material, but he called the, uh, or they called the, uh, the manifest physical illusion. It was useful because it's an unbiased field of experience. If you think of like the difference between the material reality and the psychic reality that you have in your mind, your mind is constantly filled with biases. And like, you have this like coloration to everything that you perceive in your mind that's formed by your, by your, by your, uh, opinions. Whereas like, Physical reality is going to be the way it is. It's going to kind of be a, an inflection point for all of those emotions and stuff like that. And it's going to seem a lot more random and and threatening to that avatar within the material illusion that your body represents. Because it's not simply a body as a physical instrument. It's also the concept of being trapped or, or, or nailed to a specific moment in time a specific moment in space, as opposed to the mind, which can kind of range over lots of different qualities, lots of different times. Yes. Uh, the, uh, Ra does say, though, that uh, the randomness begins to diminish as uh, spiritual growth is achieved. So uh, uh, when people are young in the illusion of their density, uh, the catalyst that comes their way physically is indeed random. Uh, but as they mature, they begin to draw to themselves catalyst which is which is not unbiased, which which is more and more ordered. I, I think I see a flaw in my interpretation in attributing randomness to catalyst of body. It, it seems like with that wheel, what's, what's, what's implied is maybe more of a cyclical nature, right? Um, cyclical. Yeah. Uh, if you, if you look at the, the image, mm-hmm. uh, there's a, uh, I can splice it in uh, on the video editing. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The, uh, uh, there's a kind of, uh, devil-like creature uh, on one end of the wheel. I mean, so I think it's it's just alternating uh, good and bad. Yeah. Uh, and and there, uh, so, so uh, I, I think that nothing is, is taken to be neutral there. Uh, there's just, there's just the cycle of, uh, action and reaction and etc cetera, etc cetera. and then over time that experience accrues 
to the point where one becomes more comfortable with it, one is not threatened, like you said, by it, and learns how to work with it in spite of the fact that it doesn't stay still and give you an opportunity to have a single relationship to it. You learn this dance that's very indicative yes. of the spiritual path, right? Yes, and, and, and the things that happen to one uh, tend to be ordered in significant ways uh, so that they really are not random anymore. Yeah. Uh, now, I think the, the uh, kicker to that would have to be how one relates to the social complex as a whole. Mm -hmm. Because uh, the process of one's own internal spiritual evolution is not perfectly ordered to the spiritual evolution of all others on the planet at this time. And so the, uh, there will be, I think you're right in, in noting that there will be a certain degree of of what would, from the standpoint of one's own process, seem random in the sense that they're not directly ordered to that process because one's relating to a much broader process that's going on in the society as a whole. And one has to come to grips with that somehow. Uh, so uh, it becomes very complex, no doubt. Yes. Um, all right. So would we like to maybe talk about the significator of body as the last archetype we're going to address? Yeah, uh, that, that's an interesting one because it, 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 it's got this man hung upside down and his legs are crossed. And that suggests uh, the cross for Ra always suggests uh, sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the uh, significator of body uh, is not so much that which acts as does the significator of mind, that acts and directs the attention and so on right. and so forth. Uh, the significator of body is that which is acted upon. And so it's the recipient uh, uh, of the action. And uh, the suggestion is that the proper attitude towards that is it is not simply the uh, unquestioning preservation of body, but body is that which is used up in the manifestation. And in the process of being used up, it, it you know there is loss. I mean. Bodies don't last. They're means to uh, ends. And we, yeah. we, we, we conceive of higher and higher uh, conceptions of those ends, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, one who lives the life without trying to hold on to it, without trying to gather its fruits to oneself as an exaltation of the self, but rather uh, lives the life as something that dies anew to each individual moment, 
that that is the way to make maximum use of the incarnation, and that I think actually applies to both polarities. Yeah, uh, the uh, both polarities have to understand that you use the body by using it up. Yeah, I I also think it's interesting how you noted the receptive nature of this. But it's interesting because it's a male character, and it's almost like it's it's the inversion of the active quality of maleness, not simply by being hung, but also the hands being bound. It's like the inversion of everything that's meant by the male. Yeah, that's true. So now the male doesn't act. <laughs> An abdication of activity. Yeah. And yeah, and look yeah. and look the, the 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 fructification that's occurring with those grapes. There's 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 huge value here. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, it, it occurs to me that most of us think of ourselves uh, in a way roughly congruent with what we see when we look in the mirror. Uh, now there are various mirroring functions we can uh, we can congratulate ourselves on our accomplishments and so forth, and that becomes a different kind of mirror. Uh, but we form over time a sense of ourselves uh, that is primarily associated with how we are manifest in the illusion. And that that's the lower self. It's that lower self, that right. lower sense of self that has to be sacrificed. Uh, and in doing that, one is not sacrificing the higher sense of self. Uh, uh, one does not lose the agency. Uh, so uh, this is not Buddhism. There, there remains a self for, uh, for Ra. Uh, 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 the self is the significator that is the unit, if you will, of evolution. Uh, that's what we are in the deepest sense. But it is nothing manifest. And all that is manifest is that of the lower self. So you could say, well, Buddhism is right after all, because what they're really saying when they're talking about no self is there is, is really nothing metaphysically fundamental to sustain the lower self. Yeah. That that is what has to be sacrificed. Yeah, and 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 I think there's there's something to be said for the feeling tone of that sacrificial concept in particular. The 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 resignation, maybe like even some despair that one has to work through in the recognition that the body is uh, impermanent, and it has to be. Its very value comes from that impermanence, right? Absolutely, and that despair will eventually come to a head. Yeah, in uh, in the spiritual yes archetype. Yes, the dark night of the soul. Yep. Anyway, and, that's something to look forward to. Yeah, uh, I, I don't want to get I, – I, every part of me wants to get into the great way of body because I think I, – I, I think the progress that I've made in understanding the archetypes centers around more and more understanding what is meant by the great way. It, it, and and I don't want to I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but it's, it's, it's a kind of alchemy, a kind of transmutation 
um, uh, always uh, converting something lower to something higher. Yeah. Um, and it just, I think that's interesting because we can contrast that to what, cause, cause I think as, as we wrap up here, Steve, what I, what I, what I'd like to do, if at all possible is sort of look at mind versus body, look at like, why is, why is it significant that we have a mind that's, uh, that's sort of like delineated from body and get into this reflexive nature of how each of these five archetypes of, of each of each domain kind of have a uh, reflection of each other. Do you, is there anything that you can say on that? Well, yeah, I, I, I tend to think of the mind body spirit division uh, that has been fundamental apparently to uh, many different octaves mm-hmm. of the creation uh, was itself an archetypal derivation at some point. Ah, that is that uh, that is that that uh, it it probably took a good deal of experience and manifestation to for intelligent infinity to come to the conclusion, or I should say infinite intelligence to come to the conclusion that uh, it was a propitious thing to distinguish between mind and body, between unmanifest and manifest. Uh, and the third there, uh, like the significant, or can sometimes be thought of as third, uh, being spirit. Uh, this, and in the world of metaphysics, the third is always first. <laughs> so uh, the spirit, undifferentiated in itself, differentiates itself into mind and body. Yeah. And so uh, uh, the the great characteristic of recent versions of uh, the creation tends to be that the mind-body-spirit is rendered complex. That is, each dimension it doesn't represent simply a facet of a whole, but can function autonomously to a certain extent. And that they, they, can, they are divided uh, in such a way that uh, their principle of operation uh, in each case is distinct. Yeah. This kind of, uh, these new different nuances on the idea of the self being a kind of pluralistic endeavor, right? It's like, it's, 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 if, it, if you're going down the positive path, it's orchestrating and finding harmony with all of these different parts of self. If you're going down the negative path, it's domination of one part over the others and then the exploitation of it, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Right. And I think there's also something to be said for mind as a kind of unbounded, in many cases I see in the in these archetypes, the the unbounded sense of mind, the the abstruse nature of mind being uh hinted at, versus body, which almost I think sometimes I think body as indicative of the material illusion functions as a kind of floor. For intelligent infinity, in, in other words, there's nothing below body. There's an inflection there. There's that that is the moment of of, of where it, intelligent infinity pierces down as far and as uh, 
condensed as possible, right? The energy is as condensed as is possible. And then the only place for it to go is back up, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, it's important to keep in mind that uh, the concept of embodiment for Ra is itself layered or multidimensional. Yes. So uh, you, uh, for example, when we die, we lose the heavy physical uh, chemical vehicle, but we don't thereby become unembodied. Uh, uh, the the bo body is the principle of individuation, to quote Aristotle. And I, I think that persists here. So uh, we're always emplaced in some sort of context. And, and it, and the mirroring function is essential to it. Yeah. So that uh, uh, mind without body would be like uh, uh, an amorphous series of feelings, uh, intimations, uh, perturbations, aspirations without a goal without an object, uh, swimming in a vast, undifferentiated ocean. Kind of sounds like time-space there. Well, it, it not only is it in time, because in time, you even have bodies in time-space. That, that's what I was wondering. I just, what would it mean to be embodied in time-space without the... Well, you have... Uh, in time, uh, uh, time-space is a shifting category, but uh, when we when we die, we enter into the time-space portion of third-density uh, experience. And uh, we traverse a series of the embodiments until we kind of coalesce in the indigo ray body mm -hmm. or the form-maker body, uh, which is where we dwell in time space until such time as we're prepared to incarnate again. Yeah. So uh, the uh, during the period in which we are discarnate, we do not lose our individuality. Right. And there and there is a retention of a great deal of uh, who we are and what we've been through in in indigo ray, and, and in order to be able to retain that. Uh, there has to be a retention of the mirroring function, because the uh, an in, an intention that cannot get any reflection of itself back to itself is just lost in the in the in the maelstrom. Yeah, it it, uh, it doesn't have any beingness that can redound back to itself. So it, the the function of body is is to be able to give that reflexive capacity to mind so that it comes back to itself as what it has been. And and there is a structure of temporality in that, I think. Yes, and and also the idea of uh, in space time, the idea uh, I think Kuo has. He, has, has talked about the distinction between time space and space time where space time allows it, it there's something about this uh concrete 
material illusion that allows us to like uh, change qualities and change our something about our essential self that in time space we can simply uh, intensify and de-intensify. Yeah, it's it's possible to do that kind of work, I think, in time space, but uh, vanishingly so. I mean, because time space is so attenuated uh, that uh, the capacity to undergo change is very, very much reduced. And, and uh, uh, that's why space-time experience is so intense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's specifically intended to give the possibility of transformation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is very often done according to traumatic progressions. The, the, the entire sort of phenomenal idea of consequence in space-time is sort of like the, the thing that we push off of, right? We can yeah. push off of something and go in a different direction. Whereas in space-time- That's a good metaphor. It gives traction. Yeah. Whereas in, whereas in time-space, we're sort of floating, but, we, but because we're floating- we can see so much. We could take in much more of the overview, right? Right. It's perfectly clear what and who we are in time space, but we can't change it very well. Right. Yes. And that makes it a perfect venue for a life review where we might think about how we want to dive back in to the world of the concrete, the world of the material. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Okay. We could keep going forever and ever, Steve, but uh, we have listeners to think of. So we will put off the rest of our uh, thoughts, uh, unless you have some closing thoughts you want to offer. No, I'm quite content with what we've covered. Okay, good. Well, uh, stay tuned for part two of uh, this, where we're going to, uh, I don't know, maybe the next thing we'll do is spirit. Or maybe we'll do the uh, transformation in great ways. I don't know. We'll figure it out, right? We'll figure it out. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Steve. This is one of the most difficult recordings I've ever done, and I appreciate you sticking with me. Thank you, Jeremy. Good to be with you. <laughs> you too. Uh, thanks, listeners, for sticking with us. Uh, reach out. If, if this prompts any thoughts, any questions, we have a contact form on inaudible.show. Uh, reach out to us. Uh, we'd be happy to engage with you. This is this is very difficult. This is it's easy to feel completely overwhelmed by this refined level of inquiry into the self. Uh, you're not alone. There's all of us going through this. We can help each other. So reach out if we can be of help. And in the meantime, dear listeners, stay in the love and light.